Before I read the scripture text this morning, uh, we've been blessed this summer to have Andrew Holman here with us as our Duke intern. I've, this is my second intern. If they're all this good, the, his, the future of the church is in great hands. You know, Jacob Lancaster, who was with us last summer, started uh, his first appointment at St. Matthew's in Morganton, doing great things. In fact, we've talked this week and, and, and uh, just checking up on him. And we've been blessed with Anders being here. Now, he's a California boy, and he hasn't become United Methodist yet, but we're working on that. Because uh, they need Jesus out in California, amen? Uh, and of course, we need it in North Carolina, too. Uh, but we're, we've been blessed. I mean, it's been such a treat to work with Andrews and, of course, going uh, to App FC uh, soccer matches as well. But uh, he is doing all the coordinating for the mission trip that's going to be happening uh, starting next week to Selma. And uh, the people that are going to go on that trip, who you'll get to see next week, uh, we're going to be blessed by the work that Andrews has been doing. So, Andrews, after I'm done with the scripture tests, you're up. Here now the word of the Lord is found in 2 Samuel Chapter 7. So then, say this to my servant David. This is what the Lord of heavenly forces says. I took you from the pasture, from the following of the flock, to be leader over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've eliminated all your enemies before you. Now I'll make your name great, like the name of the greatest people on earth. I'm going to provide a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and no longer be disturbed. Cruel people no longer trouble them as they had been earlier. When I appointed leaders over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, and the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a dynasty for you when the time comes for you to die, and you lie down with your ancestors, I will rise, raise up your descendant, one of your very own children, to succeed you and I'll establish his kingdom. He'll build a temple for my name, and I'll establish his royal throne forever. I'll be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Whenever he goes wrong, I'll discipline him with a human rod, with blows from human beings. But I'll never take my faithful love away from him like I took it away from Saul, whom I set aside in favor of you. Your dynasty and kingdom will be secured forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you for that reading, Ed. Before we begin, I wanted to actually tell a joke. I didn't tell Ed this because I wanted his reaction as well. But I heard it. So this is off script a little bit. But I heard a joke of a pastor who was retiring and he was cleaning out his parsonage. And he was cleaning out his daughter's old bedroom and he noticed there was this box in the back of his daughter's closet with hundreds of dollar bills and three eggs. And very confused, he goes to his wife and says, hey honey, do you, do you know why this box full of hundreds of dollar bills and eggs is in our daughter's old closet? And she says, well, that, that isn't our daughter's, that's actually mine. And the pastor said, asks, why do you have this? And she says, oh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to know about it. It's too, it's too much for you. But like any good pastor, he insists that she tells him. And she gives in. She says, all right, fine. So for every good sermon you had, put a dollar bill into the box. And for every bad sermon, when you laid an egg at the pulpit, I would put an egg, 
and the shoebox. And the pastor says, well, three eggs after 50 years of preaching, that's not bad. And the wife looks down again, kind of embarrassed, and the husband's the pastor says, well, it sounds like there's something you're not telling me. And she says, oh, you and I want to know about it. But again, he insists that she tells him. And she gives in and she says, well, for every time there were a dozen eggs in the box, I would sell them for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> so here's to the first egg. <laughs> But in all seriousness, I am very grateful for this church to be the church where I get to preach first. Um, and as we enter into this message, I want to recall my own roots. Ed did say that I'm not a member of the United Methodists yet. I am currently a member of the Church of the Nazarene, or as one of the one Nazarene professor at Duke Divinity School says, the one true faith. <laughs> But what we have in common between the United Methodists and the Church of the Nazarene is a shared Wesleyan heritage. And this Wesleyan heritage has been what has driven me forward for almost my entire faith. In fact, I love our tradition so much that I, when I was in London six years ago, I dragged my agnostic family to see John Wesley's campus ministry, the Foundry Chapel. I actually have a few photos if we could put them on the screen. That's me at the very front of it with a statue of John Wesley, if you can keep going. That is John Wesley's grave. It was a very amazing moment just to be reading about this guy for my whole faith life and be so close to him, if you can continue. So John Wesley was five foot three, <laughs> and this is his parsonage department, and I am six foot four, so that did not work out well. <laughs> but if you can continue, this was the second church that they built on the campus when they were starting to grow, and John Wesley, his pulpit for that was actually twice as high originally because he was five foot three. But you could see the pulpit up there, and you could see the Ten Commandments. If you can continue. Now this is my second favorite photo. This is the original Foundry Chapel. It's a quaint little chapel. It's probably about the size of a rural Methodist church here in North Carolina, which I've gotten to visit quite a few over the past year, uh, see friends who work there. But it's quaint, and it's, I imagine John Wesley standing right in front of that altar, preaching to the common folk of London. But this is my second favorite photo because this is my favorite photo. That is my little sister, Sky. My little sister. Her life, her faith, is an incarnation of the prayer, Lord, help me believe. She did not come to faith in that church, but she did begin to ponder. And I got to be with her as she was asking questions about why do we suffer and as she expressed doubts about the resurrection and the virgin birth. In fact, one thing that impressed me about Sky was that even though she was not believing yet, 
she would go to youth group on her own every single Sunday just to have a hope that she could hear the words of Jesus. And at last, just as you guys were baptizing people in the river back in May, she was being received into baptism in now her home church back in San Luis Obispo, California. And she's actually even taking on some of my footsteps in becoming an apprentice to a youth pastor during her summertime in college. And I, I'm so proud of her. But I will admit, there was also a lot of struggle on the way for me as well. There were many moments where I thought Sky would not come to the faith. And there were even moments because of that that I began doubting my own adequacy as a minister, as an evangelist, as someone who could do ministry. And every time I had that, I would open up this photo and I would remember it as a sign as to why I kept doing it. To become an active witness to the transformation of Sky and to others on their way to sainthood. To catch those glimpses of wonder at the mysteries of faith in fresh, new eyes. As we enter into today's message, I want to open with another prayer. To remember my own roots and how God has been at work in my life, I actually asked Sky to write this opening prayer. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we praise you because you are present here with us. For when two or three are gathered in your name, there you are with them. We thank you for your promises of faithful love. We give of ourselves this morning, Lord, because you give yourself for us. May you bless your servant as he preaches. May your spirit flow through him and the words he speaks. May you soften our hearts and quiet our distracted minds, remembering all that you've done and all that you are. Give us an understanding of your scriptures so that we would know better who you are and who we are as your children. We give you our praise and thanks in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Over the past month, we have been exploring the life of David. As you have heard from Pastor Ed, David is the only person in the Bible who is explicitly noted as a man after God's own heart. And as we contemplate together what that means, we have navigated David's best moments as well as some of his most disappointing. We began with his anointing by the prophet Samuel, where it was his heart and not his outward looks nor charisma that marked him as God's chosen king. And you can recall how by invoking the name and power of Yahweh, David was empowered to overpower Goliath the Philistine. We entered with him into the wilderness as he became trained by God to recognize the sacredness found in the very man who was after his own life, and then how he forgot that sacredness when dealing with Nabal. And last week, we explored the power of grieving as a step towards hope in David's own song of lament. And now, we finally get to witness David at the peak of his life. One biblical scholar stated that without a doubt, 2 Samuel 7 was the theological highlight of the book of Samuel. Another scholar, Walter Brueggemann, believes that this is, quote, one of the most crucial texts in the Old Testament for evangelical faith. This text is critical for understanding David's story, and it is absolutely crucial 
that we get this message really right to get to the heart of David. And your staff chose wisely to put that crucial text on the intern. <laughs> now at last, David is anointed king over both Israel and Judah. For the rest of our time with David, he is recognized as King David. Almost immediately, though, the Ark of the Covenant of God reappears. This sacred item, first built back in Exodus, was recognized as the throne of God. This Ark was a marker or a sign that God was especially present among the wandering people of Israel. Now David had left the Ark of the Covenant of God with his good friend Abinadon. Although he doesn't leave a long note in the book of Samuel, Abinadon does leave an important because after three months of caretaking for the ark, Obedidon's home begins receiving blessings. And David notices, so he decides to withdraw his deposit and bring it back to the city. And with great joy and festivity, David takes the ark to Jerusalem in triumph and celebration. And celebrating he is, even to the point where he proceeds to begin dancing in his underwear. But not everyone is on board with celebration like this. In fact, his wife Michelle, daughter of Saul, expresses contempt for what could be seen as improper and even blasphemous behavior for worship. And there is a tension that grows between the honor-bound Michelle and the untamed David, to the point where Michelle sadly lives the rest of her life childless. But when the celebrations are settled and David is provided rest from his enemies, he invites the prophet Nathan to offer a favor to Yahweh. In his first appearance, the prophet Nathan arrives to David's home like a poor, naive pastor in training. His intern-level wisdom is no match for David's misaimed benevolence. David says, look upon the ark of God. Look, I have a palace, but God has a tent. That's not right, is it? Maybe we should build God a house. This sounds great, actually. Finally, we're getting the temple, one of the most important, if not the most important identity marker for the people of Israel. In centuries following, the temple would become the center of Jewish life because this was the pivotal point where heaven and earth would meet, the throne from which God would rule. What an act of worship and praise by David to build God the temple. But you see, David makes a critical error in his relationship with God at this point, because he is acting as if God needs a house, as if God needs something from David. Despite this, our intern Nathan gleefully buys in, foolishly jumps the gun, saying, Go, do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that evening, Nathan receives a gentle but firm response from his supervisor. Tasked with an embarrassing retraction of words, our young prophet must speak the words of Yahweh and only the words of Yahweh. And Yahweh has a question for David. Since when did I tell you I wanted a house? Don't you know I have been with my people since the Exodus? When did I ever ask your ancestors to build me a temple? The problem with the temple it's not that it provided an established presence for a god, but that it had the potential to lock God down in one spot. Temples confine the movement of God, 
and they create an inappropriate space for overly confident kings to justify what they want because God is locked into their city. But our God does not work that way, does he? The director Woody Allen once said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans. Our God cannot be confined to a single space. The other gods, both then and now, are transactional in relationship. If you provide this quota on sacrifices and praises and dances for me, I will give you this many blessings, this many spiritual blessings, this many gifts. But our God is not transactional. Our God doesn't search for bargains. Quotas do not satisfy. Just as he moved about with absolute freedom on the Ark of the Covenant, God is absolutely free to move in and out of any temple as he so chooses. Yahweh continues. Have you forgotten who you were? You, David, were a shepherd boy. I took you from being the nearly forgotten son of a shepherd to prince over all Israel. Yahweh takes David back to his roots and makes us remember that David wasn't anointed for any reason except God chose to anoint him which means every moment of David's life was a moment carried by God. God's sovereignty empowered David to overpower Goliath. God formed David to recognize the sacredness of Saul in the wilderness. God was the one who sent Abigail to prevent David's undoing of that training in the wilderness to kill Nabal. It was God who gave the words of lament to David over Saul and Jonathan. It was God who anointed David. God does not need anything, but it is actually David who needs everything from God. Just as we think David is about to become the next Saul here, another anointed one whom the Spirit departs from, the text takes an odd twist. In a strange form of disciplining, Yahweh tells David what he will do for David. Actually, David's dynasty will be established his name will be great. His enemies will be cut off from him. Instead of David building a house for Yahweh, though, Yahweh is building a house for David. David will have the established throne he's working so hard for, but it won't be by his own merits, nor will it be on David's terms. In fact, where David's story departs from Saul's is that David's throne will extend to his offspring. This descendant's throne will be established forever, and this descendant will be like a son to Yahweh. It is hard to not think about the coming of Jesus in this promise, and throughout most of the church's reading of this passage, we have rightly done so. But those who first read this would not have been thinking about Jesus, but about the steadfast love that Yahweh promises to David's son, in spite of any shortcomings that he will have for in this text, the relationship between David and God, God and Israel, has moved from an if-then relationship to an in-spite-of relationship. In spite of David's being great, God is with him. In spite of David falling short, God is with him. The people of Israel also have heard this critique of the temple in a setting far more drastic than ours. You see, the early readers of the book of Samuel were those who were in the Babylonian exile. The book of Lamentations describes how they witnessed firsthand the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The center of their way of life was gone. Where was God? 
Had Yahweh abandoned his people to the mercies of Babylon? Was Ezekiel right when he witnessed the glory of the Lord departing from the temple? But listen to this. Yahweh promised David that his descendants shall build a house for Yahweh's name. It is not the house or temple of the Lord that will be established forever, but the name of the Lord. The temple is gone. But the God who moves according to his own will is still moving among the people of Israel, even as they faced exile, even as they saw everything that marked who they were be destroyed. The temple was for these exiles the ultimate sign that God was with them. But by fixating on the temple, both David and the people of Israel entrusted their identity and security to something which had no power of its own. As I recall my and my sister's experience at the Foundry Chapel, I kept that photo as a reminder that God was working in both of us in that space. I think of our visit to the Foundry Chapel as a sign that God was working in and through me. But there is no power in that chapel, nor is there any power in that photo, but instead that photo and that chapel point to the power which was at work. I must also remember that I was not the one who brought Sky to the faith. God had no need for me in Sky's receiving of the gospel, but rather I was an active witness to what God was doing in Sky's life, in which God chose for me to become an active participant in and through him in something that he was already up to. And when we, like David and Israel, come to realize God's ongoing grace in our lives and in the lives of those around us, we experience the great joys of God's steadfast love for us. I love that how Eugene Peterson articulated this realization, quote, Life is not something we manage to hammer together and keep in repair by our own wits. It is an unfathomable gift. We are immersed in mysteries. Incredible love confounding evil, the creation, the cross, grace, God. The sovereign power, the ongoing grace, and the steadfast love of God will challenge us to follow God beyond the signs we have made for ourselves. The Lord is with us because we remember that in John's gospel, the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory in the ultimate temple, Jesus Christ. He is the true temple, and we are like living stones of this temple. Therefore, let us have our confidence placed in him and follow him wherever he is going. Our world, our nation, our people are living times of great uncertainty. Across the board, American churches are facing decline. Bishop Willimon, a Methodist bishop and professor at Duke Divinity School, once gave a remark in my class on ordained leadership that the world that I and my peers will be entering into as pastors will not be the same world as his. The church is facing challenges of growth and discipleship, and it often feels as if Nothing is working. Churches are being shut down. Denominations are splitting. Christians are fighting among themselves more than breaking bread among themselves. 
but I do not think of this as a sign of God's abandonment. Rather, it is in moments like this where God will continue to make us recall our own stories, our own signs of faith, as they ultimately point to his promises to always be with us and to always love us. But at the same time, it is also God calling us to re-examine our signs and ask if we are trying to confine God to them. He may be calling us to remember how he has been and is and always will be in control, how it is his power at work and no other. And because his power is at work, he may be calling us to entrust our entire selves and our way of life to him in order to immerse us into the unfathomable gift of life that he gives every day, every moment. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have always done signs and wonders in the midst of your people. These signs have pointed to your spirit being with us in spite of our shortcomings, our failures, our worries, and grievances. But let us not cling to them as if they confine or command you to obey our wills. Rather, we pray that it would be your will that would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us rest assured in your promises, your sovereignty, and your absolute freedom, that you would love us in every moment, in every space. Amen.